Hello everyone and welcome to the March 19th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarron, Mnookin, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A whistleblower lawsuit against hospice provider Aceracare claims that workers rode along on Meals on Wheels deliveries and went door-to-door in government-subsidized housing, pitching what sounded like care services paid for by the government. Instead, the elderly were being enrolled in Medicare-funded hospice based on what the government says were bogus determinations that they were close to death. Federal prosecutors want the company to pay back more than $200 million in reimbursement, fines, and fees, for running what they said was little more than a money-making scheme. A federal jury agreed, finding that Aceracare had committed fraud by filing false claims for Medicare reimbursement. But the presiding U.S. District Court judge threw out the juror's verdict. She ruled that the case boiled down to a battle of medical experts and differences in professional medical judgment alone could not prove the case. Now, attorneys around the country are waiting a decision from the 11th Circuit, which heard arguments on the government's appeal of that ruling. The appeals court decision could tie the hands of prosecutors in a wide range of health care fraud cases, or it could spell continued trouble not only for hospices, but also for nursing homes, hospitals, and other health care providers. The issue of medical necessity has been at the heart of many health care fraud cases. To prove the cases, federal investigators would knock on the doors of hospice patients to ask if they were dying. And they immediately laugh or get angry and say, who told you I'm dying? Proving cases against corporate providers, though, is more complex. In the Acera Care case, originally brought by former employees in Georgia, Alabama, and Wisconsin, The government had a physician review medical records of hospice patients. He found that most were not within six months of dying, the criterion for enrolling in Medicare-funded hospice. In a two-month trial, jurors heard from both him and defense experts, then found that in the majority of cases presented, the patients were not terminally ill. Many Aceracare patients lived for years in hospice, or were discharged from hospice alive. In setting aside the jury's verdict, the district court judge said, a mere difference of opinion among physicians is not enough to establish that the claims were false. If her ruling stands, the government would have to look for other evidence to show there was an intent to defraud the government, such as kickbacks to physicians to certify that patients were dying. If the 11th Circuit overturns the judge's ruling, it certainly could motivate the government to go after more medical necessity cases. And the Court of Appeal ruled that an employer has a continuing duty to engage in the interactive process to reasonably accommodate a disabled employee. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Bolanos versus Priority Business Services. Priority Business Services provides industrial staffing to hundreds of companies in a variety of industries, including distribution, light manufacturing, food service maintenance, and clerical positions. It has about 3,500 employees placed in jobs on any given week, 
with a database of about 360,000 employees. One employee, Rene Bellanos, began work for Priority in 2013. He suffered an injury in 2014 while working for one of Priority's customers. He was released to work with restrictions, which Priority initially accommodated by assigning him to the staffing office. However, Bolanos asserted that in 2014, he was diagnosed with a hernia. Priority refused to place him back in the staffing office and informed him that it could no longer accommodate him with his restrictions, and it removed him from work. Bolanos further alleged that he was ultimately released to work with no restrictions, but Priority never gave him another job. So Bolano sued Priority, and a jury found in favor of him on his fifth cause of action for failure to provide reasonable accommodation, and his sixth cause of action for failure to engage in the interactive process. He was awarded damages totaling nearly $40,000, but that he was not entitled to punitive damages. The court also awarded attorney fees in the amount of $231,000. So Priority appealed, but the Court of Appeal affirmed the decision. It held that under FIHA, it is unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail to make reasonable accommodations for the known physical or mental disability of an applicant or employee. It is the employee's burden to initiate the process. There are no magic words necessary and the obligation arises once the employer becomes aware of the need to consider an accommodation. Once the interactive process is initiated, the employer's obligation to engage in the process in good faith is continuous, and it extends beyond the first attempt at accommodation, and continues when the employee asks for a different accommodation, or where the employer is aware that the initial accommodation is failing, and further accommodation is needed. And now our crime report. <clears throat> a San Gabriel Valley doctor who pleaded guilty to a federal drug trafficking charge for illegally distributing Oxycontin, 49-year-old Daniel Dan, Dr. Daniel Chum, a Covina resident who formerly operated a clinic in La Peony, was sentenced to over 13 years in federal prison. Special agents with the DEA said they discovered a large-scale criminal operation in which Dr. Chom was writing thousands of prescriptions for powerful painkillers. An undercover officer made three visits to his office in 2014 and observed him write prescriptions for controlled substances in exchange for two to $300 in cash or money orders. Prosecutors say Dr. Chum sold prescriptions for massive amounts of oxycodone to people he knew were drug dealers and addicts in exchange for hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. His prescriptions killed at least two addicts, a 22-year-old woman and a 28-year-old man. The young woman died after ingesting narcotics prescribed by Chum to members of an Oregon-based drug trafficking conspiracy. Chom had issued prescriptions in the names of the Oregon drug traffickers, many of whom he had never met, and Chom created fake paperwork to make it falsely appear he had examined the patients. 
Investigators in Oregon identified over 12,000 pills of oxycodone that he illegally prescribed to the drug traffickers in that state. <clears throat> and the co-owner of a Los Angeles drug and alcohol treatment facility pleaded guilty to 46 felony counts related to a $175 million fraudulent health care billing scheme. 44-year-old Kirsten Wallace pleaded guilty to five counts of insurance fraud, seven counts of grand theft of personal property, six counts of identity theft, and 28 counts of money laundering. She was sentenced to 11 years in state prison. A restitution hearing is scheduled for April 17 in Department 105 of the Foltz Criminal Justice Center. Wallace and 56-year-old Christopher Batham owned Community Recovery of Los Angeles, and they were both charged in the billing scheme. The company operated treatment centers in Southern California and Colorado. The two defendants allegedly obtained multiple health care insurance policies for their clients by using their personal identifying information and falsified the client's circumstances to obtain the policies. The prosecutors said the patients were unaware that the policies had been issued in their name. In most instances, bills were sent for services allegedly never provided, and about $44 million was paid out by five insurance companies. Batham is charged with the same 46 counts as Wallace and faces up to 45 years in prison if convicted. But last month, in a separate case, Batham was convicted of sexually assaulting seven women who were patients at his treatment center. He faces a maximum possible sentence of about 65 years in state prison and lifetime sex offender registration for that conviction. And 31-year-old Aileen Ramirez of Denair, California, has been convicted of felony workers' compensation insurance premium fraud. Ramirez was the owner and CEO of Quality Employment Services, LLC, in Modesto, a company that provided temporary workers to cover absences, skills, shortages, and seasonal workloads for client companies. Ramirez obtained a workers' comp policy for her business from the State Compensation Insurance Fund. She was required to submit payroll records to the state fund showing the number of employees and their income so the state fund could calculate the premium. But she had underreported her payroll and total number of employees in order to obtain a lower workers' compensation premium. In total, she underreported $2.8 million in payroll that resulted in a loss to the state fund of more than a half of million dollars in premiums. Ramirez pled no contest and was immediately sentenced to 120 hours of community service, three years of formal probation, in order to pay restitution to the state fund. And a former Ventura hospital worker was ordered to pay more than $26,000 in restitution and sentenced to 60 days in jail for her workers' compensation insurance fraud and given five years of supervised probation. 50-year-old Michelle Cordero, formerly of Ventura, but now living in Nicona, Texas, pleaded guilty to one felony count of insurance fraud last January. 
Cordero filed a workers' compensation claim in 2015 for a right shoulder injury she said happened while moving a shelf while working at Community Memorial Hospital. She also denied having prior shoulder injuries. But a subsequent investigation revealed that she had injured her right shoulder while moving boxes at her residence. She also filed a second claim alleging that she had contracted meningitis from a patient at the Community Memorial Hospital. She denied under oath that she had been in contact with anyone else who had meningitis. But the investigation discovered that her live-in boyfriend had recently been sick with meningitis and that she intentionally concealed the information from the insurer. Cordero was ordered to pay over $26,000 in restitution to Sedwick Claims Management Services, Inc. And in medical news, a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association claims the U.S. spends about twice what other high-income nations do on health care, but has the lowest life expectancy and the highest infant mortality rates. Researchers examined international data comparing the U.S. with 10 other high-income countries. The U.S. spent 17.8% of its gross domestic product on health care. And other countries' spending ranged from a low of 9.6% of gross domestic product in Australia to a high of 12.4% of GDP in Switzerland. A large part of this was administrative costs, which accounted for 18% of GDP in the U.S., more than double the average of administrative costs of 3% of GDP. At the same time, the U.S. spent an average of nearly $1,500 per person on drugs, compared with an average of half that amount per person across all of the countries in the study. U.S. spending was also higher for imaging and for many of the most common medical procedures. If the U.S. did less imaging and fewer of 25 common procedures and lowered prices and the number of procedures to levels in the Netherlands, it would translate into a savings of $137 billion. Up to a third of CT and MRI scans may be deemed unnecessary and carry radiation risks. And new data on the independent medical review process used to resolve California workers' comp medical disputes show that IMR volume dipped for the first time ever in 2017. But the outcomes were unchanged as IMR physicians again upheld 91.2% of modified or denied medical service requests that they reviewed. The CWCI analysis is based on a review of nearly 650,000 IMR decision letters issued from 2014 through 2017 after a UR physician modified or denied a request for medical service. State lawmakers anticipated that once doctors, attorneys, and others came to know which services could be approved as meeting evidence-based medicine standards, the process would reduce treatment disputes. But 2017 marks the first time in the five years since its inception that IMR volume has declined. The mix of service requests reviewed by IMR physicians in 2017 showed only minor changes from 2016 as prescription drug requests, 
29.1% of which were for opioids, again accounted for the largest share of the IMRs, with UR determinations on pharmaceutical requests upheld 92% of the time. Aside from the opioid requests, requests for musculoskeletal drugs, dermatologicals, and anti-inflammatory drugs topped the list of pharmaceutical IMRs, while compounded drug requests fell from 65 to 4.2%, the biggest decline of any prescription drug category. Among all medical service categories, requests for evaluation and management services, which is primarily referrals for consultations again, had the best chance of being overturned by IMR. As in prior years, most of the disputed requests that went through IMR in 2017 came from a small number of physicians, with the top 10% of physicians accounting for 85% of the disputed requests. And opioids remain the most common type of prescription drugs used to treat California injured workers with lost time injuries. But sustained efforts to curb their use are paying off as new data show that in the past decade they fell from about a third of indemnity claim prescriptions to now less than a quarter. While there was a concurrent increase in anti-inflammatories and anti-convulsants, which are often used as opioid alternatives. The CWCI released two studies on the effects of opioids on the workers' comp system. The first study is based on data from 12.5 million prescriptions dispensed to California injured workers from 2007 to June 2017. Although opioids remained the top drug group prescribed to workers with lost time injuries, their share of indemnity claim prescriptions declined from a record of 32.1% to 23.2% in 2017, while their share of the prescription payments fell from 305 to 18.6%. The decline in opioid use accelerated in 2012, which tracks with tighter scrutiny by utilization review and independent medical review programs, restrictions by payers, pharmacy benefit managers, and medical provider networks, and increased physician and public awareness of opioid risks. While opioid use has dwindled, both anti-inflammatories and anti-convulsants now account for increased shares of indemnity claim prescriptions. While dermatological drugs had the biggest increase in payments, more than doubling from 6.9 of the 2008 drug spend to 16.1 of the 2017 payments. This was largely due to the growing prevalence of high-cost dermatological creams. The second CWCI study shows that the recent decline in opioid use is attributable, attributable to both fewer new claims for which opioids were prescribed and a reduction in opioid use on claims in which there was chronic opioid use. The medium time from achieving chronic opioid status to weaning off of opioids completely was eight months. The median time from accident date to when the worker was weaned off completely was 19 months. Claims involving chronic opioid use are considerably more expensive than the typical workers' compensation claim. 
And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.